Best case ever. Best case ever. Yes, this is EM Case's Best Case Ever mini podcast series, and I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman. For this best case ever, we have Dr. Ross Claybo, who's been on EM cases before, way back, I think it was in around 2011, and Dr. Kirat Graywell. Dr. Graywell is a fourth-year resident at University of Toronto and has been doing a fantastic job with writing up the written summaries for a whole lot of the EM cases main episodes. So welcome, Kirat, to EM cases for the first time. Thank you. And uh, welcome back, Dr. Claybo. Uh, it's great to have you here. Dr. Claybo is an emergency physician at Northwark General and Markham Stouffville Hospitals in Toronto. Nice to be back. So this is a case I saw last year uh, while I was working under Dr. Claybo, and it was actually uh, morning. Around 11 o'clock in the morning, this patient was in the intermediate or subacute zone of Janus General Hospital, which includes beds that are non-monitored beds. And so it was a 66-year-old woman uh, who came into the hospital, brought in by her husband and daughter with a 10-day history of lethargy and generalized weakness. In terms of... Uh, the HPI, the family said that the mom was having decreased PO intake over these last 10 days, was not leaving her bed, and she's had about seven episodes of non-bloody, non-Molina stools. She's complaining of intermittent abdominal pain, but there have been no no fevers, no chest pain, no shortness of breath. On further questioning, there is no travel history, no recent antibiotics, no recent medicine changes, no history of C. difficile, and there is no recent alcohol use either. On further questioning, in terms of the patient's past medical history, there is past medical history of type 2 diabetes, gout, hypertension, atrial fibrillation, stroke, uh, congestive heart failure, and chronic alcohol use in the past that resulted in a subdural hematoma, although her husband and daughter have said that she hasn't consumed alcohol in the past two years after the subdural hemorrhage. Uh, the medications that the patient was using included your usual diabetic medications, medications for CHF and stroke prevention. On exam, uh, the patient's vitals were all normal. She's awake, alert, and wasn't in any acute distress. In terms of her physical exam, there wasn't much to find on exam, except there was a bit of abdominal tenderness, but no overt uh, peritoneal signs. All right. Well, so far, this kind of sounds not overly exciting. You're talking about a 66-year-old woman with a bit of diarrhea, a bit of belly pain, kind of lethargic, but GCS 15 it sounds like she basically just needs some fluids, check her lights, and she could probably go home. And this is where it kind of got interesting. So I had ordered some labs on the patient, and the labs come back on this woman who looked fine on exam, and the blood work comes back showing a creatinine of over 1,100. 
uh, which is about 10 times the upper limit of normal, an anion gap of 31, with a VBG showing a pH of 6.96, a PCO2 of 16, and a bicarb of 4. Her potassium was 8, and her ECG, which was then ordered, showed a widened QRS at 170 milliseconds and a prolonged QT at 590 with a right bundle branch block. Wow. So this person who looks not too sick is in severe renal failure, hyper-K, huge metabolic acidosis with a huge anion gap. And uh, you need to start acting quickly, I guess, even though they don't look sick. So first things first, Dr. Claybo, I guess uh, you wanted to correct that K pretty quickly. Uh, what did you do with this patient when you got back this initial blood work? We went ahead and gave some calcium to stabilize the um, cardiac membranes. And then we started getting the shifting agents in place, uh, which are just standard uh, insulin and dextrose for this patient. And then we had to start uh, thinking deep and hard about what was causing this, and particularly in this patient where the lab value wasn't congruent with the clinical picture. We had to start thinking about what can we possibly be missing and what could be causing this very distorted and abnormal lab picture. We knew that the renal failure could explain some of the things, but probably not all of the results that we were getting back. And so we ordered the battery of tests, um, including toxicology, serum ketones, and both uh, urine and, and uh, serum toxicology. And uh, started to think even at this point about whether uh, we needed to correct uh, the metabolic acidosis that was occurring. Right. So I guess the big question that jumps out at me there is whether you gave bicarb or not. You know, it's really controversial whether to give bicarb in a patient with severe metabolic acidosis, because my understanding is that in the literature, there's no evidence that giving bicarb to patients with severe metabolic acidosis actually improves outcomes. This patient had a pH below seven, a bicarb of four. Did you give bicarb to this patient? Why? Why not? We didn't at this point started. Um, we weren't sure if this was going to be a persistent low bicarb. We suspect it was going to be. Uh, we didn't have quite the hand on the cause at this point. And um, we thought we'd start with the, correcting the potassium and then just seeing what happens with repeat blood work with the bicarbonate level. You're right that the studies that have been done showing all the toxic effects of metabolic acidosis with low pH have all been mostly done on lab animals and very little human studies to show um, some of the physiological effects that people know about, particularly the vasodilation, the cardiac depressant effect, the immune uh, suppression. We know that there's a little bit of shift in the oxyhemoglobin disassociation curve, but whether that becomes clinically important. In this patient, he did not look ill in any of those facets. So we had a fairly well-looking patient with a very distorted lab test that by textbook uh, reading, you'd probably consider treating on spec at anything less than 7.1 pH, which is the standard uh, teaching as far as metabolic acidosis. But then again, um, research has not borne that out, and nobody really knows what the treatable pH should be. Uh, currently. So with this patient, you, you treated the hyper-K, shifted them, uh, gave them some calcium, and then you repeated uh, the VBG. And was the bicarb still low? Did, at that point, did you give bicarb? The pH improved to above 7.1. I think it was about 7.2 in the second reading. Um, but the bicarb stayed at 4. So based on 
again, the literature, you think, well, that must be a safe pH. The only thing is we thought that with the bicarb before this person was, whatever was causing this situation, was going to put this patient back into a similar acidolic state very quickly. So I think it was at that point or shortly after we decided to start the bicarbonate and uh, both loading dose and infusion. We also knew that it was going to help uh, flush out a bit of the potassium that was in the system as well. So it was going to have two possibly beneficial effects, although we were certainly aware of the possible adverse effects it could have. All right. So you're trying to sort out what the cause of this is. You know, in medical school, we all learned about mud piles. Dr. Grewal, what were you thinking in terms of the differential diagnosis at, at this point? And uh, did you just go through your mud piles or is there something better than mud piles? Hint, hint. <laughs> There is a better mnemonic that we can consider, you know, going through med school, you always learn about mud piles, but this might be an out-of-date acronym uh, to use just because metabolic acidosis due to peraldehyde, which is the P in uh, mud piles, is very rare. Um, Other things that kind of come up with mud piles are that iron and isoniazide are just two of many drugs that can cause um, uh, hypotension and lactic acidosis. And then the other issue with the mud piles acronym is that there are three newer anion gap generating acids that have been recognized recently, which aren't really captured in the mud piles mnemonic. So what I've come across that is actually, I feel more useful than mud piles is this gold mark mnemonic. And so in this mnemonic, the G stands for glycol, so ethylene glycol and propylene glycol. The O stands for oxyproline, which is a metabolite of acetaminophen. The L stands for lactate. The D stands for D-lactate, which can be a result of acetaminophen, short bowel syndrome, propylene glycol infusions for lorazepam and phenobarb. The M in the Goldmark mnemonic stands for methanol. The A stands for ASA. The R stands for renal failure, and the K stands for ketoacidosis, which can be due to either starvation, alcohol, and DKA. So I feel that that's a better mnemonic and kind of captures the more common causes that you should be thinking about in a metabolic acidosis. Great. We'll have that gold mark mnemonic on the, on the show notes. All right. So we've got this great mnemonic now. We've got your differential diagnosis. So in this patient... Uh, We probably don't have enough information to really narrow the differential at this point too much. I mean, it could have been toxic alcohol. We don't know what the lactate is yet. We don't know whether the patient took ASA or not. They are in renal failure, so that can certainly cause the anion gap metabolic acidosis. There might be some more things going on as well. Dr. Claybo, could you tell us uh, what additional blood work came back and, uh, and how did that change things? Some of the serum tox screen that they could do in-house, we got back, and that includes the uh, serum ethanol, acetaminophen, aspirin, uh, which is negative. So we knew there wasn't a chronic acetaminophen toxicity going on in a malnourished patient, this lady. The ketones came back positive, but as you know, that's just a qualitative test and doesn't show you the degree of ketosis. We thought it may have been a huge contributor to this patient's presentation. The osmolality came back high with a gap of 20. The prize result was the lipase came back very high after dilution uh, correction. They found it around 600. So this person was having a very large um, number, but a very mild form, looked like a pancreatitis. So that instigated some other testing along the side in terms of abdominal CT scan. 
the lactate did come back normal as well as the glucose. All right. So that kind of narrows things down a bit. So it wasn't lactate. This isn't a lactate acidosis. It's not DKA if the glucose was normal, although my understanding is that some of the newer anti-hyperglycemics can actually cause a euglycemic DKA, but we'll leave that for another best case ever. (laughs) You've got positive ketones, so you're thinking maybe starvation, maybe alcohol, and you've got this high lipase now, so the patient probably has pancreatitis. So Dr. Clabel, what did you guys do next? The fact that the lactate was normal, uh, we knew the patient, the only medication he was on for his diabetes was metformin, so it ruled out a couple of things uh, that were possibly due to drugs. The, and also the clinical state did not fit lactic acidosis in terms of uh, shutdown of uh, physiological function. So we were thinking, leaning more towards, at this point, renal failure compounded by starvation, ketosis, and but still an outside chance of an abnormal alcohol that lab result did not come back until much, much later. Uh, so we were left sort of groping blindly with that possibility in the background. The big question that often comes up with these patients with uh, a metabolic acidosis and also have a high osmolar gap, the big question comes up is whether you gave famepazole on spec because you had to wait a few hours, I understand, uh, for the toxic alcohol results to come back. We didn't, and uh, there's a number of factors to that. We didn't consult poison control. Uh, we didn't think based on, I guess, Kirat's interaction with the family and my subsequent interaction with the family and the patient that this person had as- access to and uh, motivation for taking abnormal alcohols. Although it was hard to explain the acidosis without that lab value back. We know that renal failure can cause uh, acidosis. It rarely causes bicarbs go, to go below 10. This is with communication with our nephrologist staff. So by itself, not the cause. We know that uh, ketosis is listed as a possible uh, ketoacidosis, and ketosis could explain both the osmolar gap and the anion gap acidosis. And I think clinically, having seen some cases that dripped down to that same level of bicarb and pH in the previous months at the same hospital, uh, I thought this was probably the big contributor to this person's metabolic state. But having said that, it would have been very reassuring to have the abnormal alcohols because a lot of it meant that we had to make a quick decision on whether to give an antidote that was quite costly and in short supply. And in fact, in some hospitals in the city, not in supply at all. Both Kira and myself thought that the relationship with the patient was the overriding factor that we felt very comfortable. We established a good therapeutic relationship uh, with this family and this patient at this stage that we could rely on the clinical history more than our discomfort with the laboratory values. Yeah, I agree. I discussed quite frankly with the patient that we were concerned that, you know, could this be a toxic alcohol that he uh, that she ingested? And the patient denied this. We spoke to the family members separately, and they kind of confirmed this history, saying the patient was always in the house and did not have access to this. So we felt comfortable enough with that history and with the relationship we had built that we felt that the history we were, we were receiving was correct. All right. So what was the uh, what was the outcome in the end of this patient? So they, they got the bicarb. They didn't get the famepazole. Uh, they got admitted to the intensive care unit. Uh, what, did, what ended up happening to them? 
We thought perhaps they would have been shipped to another hospital that had dialysis capability, but they weren't because they were uh, comfortable that they were starting to rebound laboratory-wise in the ICU. Uh, they were equally confused uh, in terms of what the cause was. The abnormal alcohol levels did come back negative, but this was about eight hours, nine hours into the case, sort of into the evening hours. So it basically removed all the toxic causes for this patient and left them with what we were thinking the metabolic acidosis based on probably starvation for a week on top of renal failure. We had other differentials in mind. We had alcoholic ketoacidosis. There's all sorts of other possible ketoacidosis as well. Um, but we were again relying on our history that this person had no recent ingestion and didn't appear to be any withdrawal state at the time of presentation. The potassium corrected quickly. The acidosis took a few days to completely come around. It was stubbornly low, the bicarb, even when I saw the patient the next day in the ICU. But they persisted with the bicarbonate drip, and the patient corrected and discharged from the hospital with a, a normal uh, creatinine and normal bicarb. Wow, great save. Dr. Grewal, could you tell us what you learned from this case? So I think this was a great case in terms of learning. It really solidified my differential of a metabolic acidosis and just remembering that goldmark mnemonic. I feel that it's a better mnemonic to use than mud piles. More of the more common reasons for a metabolic acidosis are covered in those. The other thing that this case really solidified for me was the osmolar gap. I feel like through training, we often think of only the toxic alcohols as causing an osmolar gap, but this case really made me think of other causes of a high osmolar gap, including other alcohols, uh, ketoacidosis, and in critically ill patients to consider sepsis and infection or and ischemia uh, as a cause of an osmolar gap as well. A lot of the decision-making with the fomepazole came down to the fact was the parent compound, I didn't think, based on osmolar gap of 20 was present. We thought that was an osmolar gap that could be explained just with ketosis. And anything higher, we'd be a little more reluctant to withhold probably the antidote on spec. I think a lot of people would feel uncomfortable with these lab values withholding it. But I felt that even in emergency where you're seeing a patient often for one time only in their lifetime, you can establish a good enough therapeutic relationship that you can base your decisions on the facts as you have them and not just speculation. And I think that was one of the take-home points probably for both of us in this case. We can rely on this part, even in an emergency where every patient's a stranger and we have this one encounter. Right, so taking that time to form a good therapeutic relationship with the patient and the family can really save you a whole lot of trouble down the road. Another take-home uh, point from this case was what the indications to give bicarb in a severe metabolic acidosis is. It's quite controversial. There's no set guidelines in terms of who should receive bicarb. And as Dr. Claybo said, there's not really much in terms of literature about who should be receiving this. But in this case, it really taught me to consider giving bicarb in patients who have a severe and persistent uh, acidosis and are quite sick, as was uh, this patient. Thank you both so much uh, for coming on EM Cases and telling us that great case. I think the listeners will will really get a lot out of this, and and I encourage them to go back and review the, uh, the differential for both anion gap metabolic acidosis and osmolar gap acidosis, and to remember that a good therapeutic relationship in the emergency department sometimes should trump just treating on spec. Mm-hmm.